0: So, we've been going along on this road to the kingdom. And, and um, you know, we started out a couple of chapters in, in Genesis 1 and 2. And, you know, everything's, everything's good. And we go, yeah, if this is a kingdom, if this is, you know, where the kingdom is leading, it's a great start. God creates everything. There's nothing except God. And then God creates everything. And he doesn't only just create stuff, and he doesn't just create stuff that he might want or he might need because God doesn't really have any needs. Instead, he creates for us and he creates for humanity and he creates all that is good and all that he creates is good. He even takes special care when he creates Adam and Eve and places them in, in this, this place where they can, they can flourish, they can thrive. But as we saw, there's, there's the twist that came last week. It's a twist for us. It's a problem for us because we don't, um, you know, it's kind of unexpected that a all-powerful, loving, perfectly good God would create this and that somehow part of His creation could just mess it up. It doesn't... It, you know, it doesn't really make sense to us. And we're gonna be unpacking this over the next couple of months, but I want you to keep in your head, keep in your head something. Because sometimes when we look at what Adam and Eve did, what they, what they were saying is, this can't possibly be, or this can't possibly be the right thing, or there must be something better. But if God created a world where the human beings could fall, he had to have had a reason. Nowhere in the creation stories is God surprised. Nowhere is he shocked. He had a reason and his reason is a kingdom reason there's something about the kingdom that required us to go through this stage one of creation which we all get but also this second stage which is the fall and we're going to talk about it even more today and so how we left the story you know last you know last week is um, the sin comes in the rebellion, the rejection, and then Adam and Eve are put out of this of this perfect home, this place where God would come and visit on earth and're they 're put out from it and 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 now there 's going to be things that make life hard, and it 's things that have to do with physical things like childbirth and and you know working and trying to produce food from the land but also to break down in the relationship this this pure relationship that God wanted to create between this this husband and wife is now beset by the problems of this power struggle and and so what, where they might have thought, like, you know, maybe if we crawled into Adam's brain, maybe Adam was like, all right, you know, Eve, Eve thought it was a good idea. She did it. She offered it to me. I'm going to do it because, you know, that's all in the name of let's all get along. Let's keep the peace. But what happens? Well, it just unleashes this this dynamic to their relationship, which will now dominate it. They apparently still love each other, but what's going to dominate their relationship is this, this, this vying for power. And I'm not going to, you know, go into this in depth anymore, but, but you know, I've talked about this before in, in a marriage relationship. If power is, at the, is, is really at the core of your relationship, not love because love looks out for the best of the other and the best of the two together but if power is at the base of it then what eventually happens is either you become a loser or you're married to a loser and neither one of those is a good thing and it's but it's true and i've done enough marital premarital counseling and then in marital, marital counseling, where usually by the time they see me, it's, it's pretty much over. But in that marital counseling, it's, it's somebody really is just, they've just given up. They're a loser. They've lost. They're not going to fight anymore. And that's just a step away from not caring And what's really weird about this is, you know, the way we saw God pictured in, it's not this, like, micromanaging God. It talks about them walking in the cool of the evening with him. And, but he wasn't sitting there like, Adam, you're not doing that right, you know, he's not, he's not, he's not sitting there giving them a hard time. It's this, it's this relationship of, like, caring and love and wanting, you know, them to experience and. And we also saw that picture of the life-giver, of, of, of God breathing the, the life into the nostrils, that very intimate picture of God. And it, what else would you expect? When you expect perf- perfect love, when you, I mean, when you reject perfect love, when you reject perfect goodness, When you reject a God who cares so much about you, what else would you expect when you reject the life giver? Well, you get what they got. Struggle, pain, death. Not because God is sitting there inflicting this on them. It's because they've rejected him. And what we're going to find today, when we, when, we, when we look at the text today, what we're going to find today is that in moving away from, from the perfect God, the God of love, the life giver, in the desire from, for freedom from the life giver, that we quickly become enslaved. And instead of having a, a Lord who is the Lord of love and all that is right and good, we become enslaved to something that in many ways is just mindless. And this is where we live. And, and, and what's hard is that, you know, a lot of us, people don't even realize it. You know, we live in the United States where we always talk about freedom. You know, but I think what COVID might have shown some of us and what... Um, other people have realized for a long time is how much freedom do you actually have in the land of the free? How much do you want to do but you cannot do it? Are you really free? How much do you not want to do that you have to do? You know, it's, if I was saying this in April, around April 15th, you know, everybody would be like, oh, yeah, I know. But what about this? How much do you sometimes want to do what is right? Not even talking about politics. You just want to do the right thing. But either you can't do it or you just won't do it. I was trying to think of like a good analogy and I don't think I came up with one, but I'll try one anyways. What if you were born in prison? I think the, the movie Megamind, the, I think the villain was born in prison, who becomes the hero, by the way. Sorry to spoil it for some of you. But, but what if you were born in prison and that's all you ever knew? You didn't know there was an outside world. You only knew that there was this prison. If that's all you knew, then you would behave a certain way within that prison. You would fight for freedom and rights within that prison. Well, think about this. In that situation, you would have been ignorant of a world where you didn't know you were enslaved. And so, to some extent, even though anybody from the outside looking in would be like, you're restricted, you're confined, but you don't realize it, within that, you could still experience some sense of what you might consider freedom, though it's not true freedom. But what about this? What if at some point you know you're in prison? You know you're in prison, you know that there's something beyond prison, but you don't wanna leave. You would rather fight the battles in prison for the freedom in prison than freedom from that prison. Which would be worse? I think we can forgive the person who doesn't know there's something beyond the prison. But the person who knows and doesn't want to be free well, And I think that's the world we live in. This, we're, we're born into this world. It's the world we know. We live in a world and so we start to fight for our freedoms and our rights within this world and we ignore this greater enslavement. We ignore... The fact that we are actually being driven by something other than just ourselves. And there are some people who are ignorant of it, and the Bible tells us what to do with people who are ignorant of this, and that is to share with them the gospel, to show them what it means to, to, to be free in Christ and, and to live as those free in Christ. Then there's a lot of people who actually know, some of them who consider themselves Christians, they know, but they don't want to leave. They would rather fight. They would rather fight for those freedoms within the prison than be freed from the true enslavement. This is... This is the, the dark part of where the road is leading. We started with this creation of goodness and light, and now we're going down this very dark path. And so we come to what we're going to look at today, chapter, chapter 4 of Genesis. And Adam and Eve, you know, they're beginning their life outside Eden, and we get a little ray of sunshine here at the beginning, where it says in verse 1, "One now Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. And again, she, she bore his brother Abel. Now Abel was a keeper of sheep, and Cain a worker of the ground. We talked about this on Wednesday night, but there's a few clues in here that tell us that Adam and Eve have at least made steps to reconciliation with God. They've at least made some steps to, to saying, okay, we messed up and now we're, we're outside the garden, we can't go back in, but we're still going to demonstrate our love for God. And, and the first thing we see is their obedience. If you go all the way back to Genesis 1, when, when, when humanity is being created, humanity is given two jobs. One is to be fruitful and multiply. The second one was, you have dominion over the earth, take care of it, use it. And we find them doing both of those things. We see. We see where Adam and Eve have their... Their first son and then their second son. Be fruitful and multiply. But we see that their sons are, are actually are, are doing the second part. And of course, where did they get that from? Well, I'm sure they got it from mom and dad. And this is, this is God's grace being shown. Yeah, they messed up. Yeah, they they rejected, they rebelled, they let... They let selfishness and pride take over. But what they do right here is they don't let their past sins prohibit future righteousness. We see this in another little detail that that we miss. We'll miss this. I don't think the ancient Israelites missed this. Eve says, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. If you remember back in Genesis three, in the first few verses, when, when the serpent is saying like, surely God didn't say this, and he doesn't use, he doesn't use the, the personal name of God. Remember, whenever you see Lord, in all capital letters in the Old Testament, the word behind that is Yahweh that's the personal covenant name of God. And so serpent doesn't, doesn't use that name. Just says God. Just says Elohim. Eve responds. And when she responds, she does the same thing the serpent does. She just says God. She leaves out his personal name. But here, she brings it back. It's rather touching and rather beautiful that she doesn't just say oh I've gotten help I've gotten a man with the help of God Elohim she doesn't even say Lord God she just says Yahweh the personal name of God and so we can see like something's happened to them and we see God's grace because God doesn't just just get them out of the garden and then abandon them. And I always think, like, you know, how could, you know, how could this story have occurred? This is, this is how this story occurred. It's what the Bible tells us. But how could it have occurred? What could have happened after Adam and Eve were kicked out of the garden? Well, they could have just said... You know, blamed each other like they did in the garden and said, okay, well, I'm just going to go over here and the other person, I'm going to go over there and live my life, you live your life. We wouldn't be here. Um, they could have said, well, you know, I guess we just got to make our own way now. God can't possibly use us. come up with this kind of false humility, which is really just an extension of their pride. Anytime you say, God cannot use you, it's not humility. It's pride. Because you're basically saying, God, my inferior abilities are much worse than your power. You can't possibly, you can't possibly do anything with me it's kind of this weird reverse kind of strange pride that we have where we're doing the same thing that Adam and Eve did well they learned their lesson they're not doing that here and what we find is that the past sins don't prohibit future righteousness they can still do what is right And what they do is they don't sit around going, okay, God, now what? No, because God's purpose and his plan did not change. His purpose and his plan was be fruitful and multiply. You have dominion over the earth. You're not going to be able to do it the way you could have done it had you remained obedient, but you can do it the way you can now. And so they, they remain faithful in doing what God has said in, 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 in that situation that they're in. You know, some of us find ourselves in situations that aren't our fault, you know, they just, they happen we we thought life would be one way or the other and it happens but sometimes we've done things we've made wrong choices we've gone down a path of like rejecting god rebelling against god ignoring god doing whatever and we've created situations what so encouraging about this story this this, this first couple verses, what's so encouraging is, all right, you messed up. All right, the world messed you up. Now it's time to get up, and with whoever you are, with whatever you have, you continue to be faithful. See, we don't like that. We, we, we want eventually to be so pitiful and so pathetic that God will say like, all right, you don't need to be faithful anymore. Your, your life's just too screwed up. Your situation is just too terrible. That's why I love the story of, some of you know, I don't always say her name wrong, Johnny Erickson Tata or Joni Erickson Tata, who was like this, you know, like back in the 70s, she's this um, very talented, very smart, artistic, um, athletic um, young woman. And she has a, a an accident where she becomes paralyzed from basically the neck down. And I don't wanna go totally into her story, but I'll tell you, you know, what, 40-something years later. She's done probably more with her life than people who have full use of their bodies. She's an artist, and you can go online and see her art. She started a ministry that helped reach out to to special needs children and their families. Every year they they would host a camp. We tried to get her to come to a Waterhouse Lecture, but right when we asked, she had gotten to the point where she just said she couldn't travel anymore. But we're inspired by people who say, it's not what I don't have. It's not what I've lost. I bring to you God who I am whatever it is and I will be faithful. It's so encouraging to see they didn't just mope. They didn't just, you know, keep complaining. But we go from that light of grace that moment of reconnection to Cain. And it says, in the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground. And Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering. But for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. So Cain was very angry and his face fell. The Lord said to Cain, why are you angry, and why has your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. You know, we, so we get this picture, Cain and Abel, you know, they grow up, time has passed, who knows how much time, but time has passed. And at some point, Cain brings, and the way it looks in the English is the way it looks in the Hebrew. It just says, He brought something. He brought some fruit. He brought some vegetables. It's completely unadorned, unmodified. That's what He brought. But then Abel, it says, He brought the firstborn of His flock. And he and, and it seems to be more than one, because then it says they're fat portions, and by bringing the firstborn, he was doing something really important because usually the firstborn firstborn was your best it doesn't specify best here later on. the sacrificial law will say, "Bring your best." but he was bringing something that that cost him something he was bringing something that that, was cons- that he considered best. He was bringing something that, that actually put him at risk. If he gives his firstborn, he's showing this complete trust in God, that, that God will, will overcome that. If anybody's raised animals before, What do you want to do with the best? You you want to breed them so that, you know, your animals get stronger. If you ever watch horse racing, right? I think after the second, third, fourth year, then horses are too old and they need to be retired. And the champion horses, what happens to them? Well, they, they breed other champion horses. The horse that came in last and got lost, well, that horse may be, well, in the cartoons of my youth, gone to the glue factory. Um, Not sure if they actually went to the glue factory, but that's what we thought when we were kids. And so he, he brings the best, but it's more than that. It's something that costs him, and it has something to do with not just what he brings, it has to do with the condition of his, of his heart, why he brings this. And so God is not just saying, I don't like fruits and vegetables. And I really like meat, especially good fatty meat. That's not what God's saying. It has to do with what those represent and what it represents about what's in their heart. And God has grace to Cain. He talks to him He says, why are you upset? He said, you still can fix this. You can still fix this. And if you do, it's gonna be awesome. But if you don't, sin is crouching at the door and its desire is contrary to you. I love what, (laughs) what God says here. He doesn't say, you're a bad, weak person. You're a terrible person and you're just, you have no hope. No, he actually says, that thing inside of you is contrary to who you really are. He's connecting with what he knows is good, good in Cain. We think of Cain as like, ah, there's no good in him. And yet God says, its desire is contrary to you. But Cain is still on the path that his parents have gotten off of. He wants freedom from God. He wants to do things his own way. God gives him a plan, a way to fix this but he doesn't want it, and God tells him what the results are, and and in truth, if you reject God, it will lead to enslavement to sin. See, in the garden, God was was there. He was helping. And and because everything's going well, which usually happens in our lives, when things go well, we take it for granted. And here, God, again, He's trying to help, but Cain, he doesn't want the hell. And God knows you're made in my image. You're made in my image. But the sin, it's going to take take over. And maybe Cain made the mistake that a lot of people make, which is they think like, oh, you know, it's just a small thing. Yeah, I'm a little upset. It's a small thing. I'll just go talk to Abel about it. Maybe he thought that. Maybe he thought, you know, it's just a little bit of jealousy. It's just a little bit of envy. Who knows? But God is warning him. He's saying, you might think it's small, but it's not small. It's like a wild animal crouching at your door. And so we see how that plays out in verse eight he says, Cain spoke to Abel his brother, and when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. What's happening here? Well, you know, we 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 can see what's taking over. What's taking over is is how Cain feels. That you know, that that you know he thinks he's been wrong. And he's, and he's unleashing this mindless force. The way this is pictured when, when God speaks, he says, Sin is crouching at the door. It's like this wild animal that you cannot control. Cain thinks he, he can control it, but he can't. And once it's unleashed, it will do whatever it does. And here what we see is this sin, this focus on the self, it reduces the value of human life, and especially the human life of others. Reduces the value. Notice what's at play here. Cain's pride is more important than his brother's life. Does that make any sense? Well, when we're sitting here, and if you're not currently engaged in some kind of conflict, when you're sitting here, you might go, yeah, that's crazy. But so often when we, when we get engaged in our, these, you know, these, these problems in relationships, whether it's in family or bosses or neighbors or whatever else, you can see once this mindless force takes over, the value of human life goes down. It's why there's, you know, there's no such thing as victimless crimes. There's no such thing as just, well, it's only a sin if I do it. Even the way we think about people, That hurts. And it especially hurts in, in the church where what we're supposed to be is this, this family, this community. And if I just have these negative thoughts, this, these jealous thoughts, these, these thoughts of comparing and competition with one another, it weakens that which God is saying, This is why I've brought you together. We see the reducing of the value of human life, and you know, we see this in in a big and and small ways. In the 20th century, supposedly we had these these utopias that were gonna be unleashed on the world that were developed in the 19th century, and and, you know, one of them was this idea of communism. And if on paper you read it, it sounds so wonderful, the reality of the 20th century By conservative estimates, in the 20th century, communist nations killed 300 million of their own people. We're not talking about war, we're talking about their own people. The value of human life plummets. What's happening? Well, there's a lot of reasons behind that, but one of them is communism is, is partly based on this idea of atheism. And if I don't believe in God, and I don't believe in God who is the life giver, the one who says life is good, not just my life, but your life, and even the lives of strangers and the lives of enemies, that life is good. Whether life is good or not, it is still good. Whether your experience of it is good, it's not the point. Christianity highly values life. Not because we just in and of ourselves highly value life, but because it's what we find, who our God is. He created human life and he called it very good. When we walk away from a right belief in who God is, one that's anchored in his word, or when we just decide we're not going to believe in God at all, the value of human life drops. You might have heard about this story in Iceland where they say they've cured the Down syndrome. They, had, they said they virtually eliminated Down syndrome from you know, from their population. Well, if you read the story, how'd they do it? Well, it's interesting because the report that first came out was wrong. And it said basically that, that if a baby had Down syndrome, they would just be aborted. So they would do early, early tests. Okay, Down syndrome, your, your baby's likely have Down syndrome parents would abort the kid but then I was reading more recent and what's interesting is is that some of the people from Iceland some of the government officials say no that story was wrong that story was wrong and then they explained the process that they went through and there were some things in the story that were wrong but here is was here's something that wasn't wrong they presume the human life of a Down syndrome child wasn't, was at least worth considering not being allowed to happen. I don't care what the percentage is, I don't care if it's 50%, 60%, 99%, I don't care. What I care about is the feeling behind it that says it's okay to devalue certain human beings, especially those who have no voice and those who are weak. One of the things I just, I mean, when I was in, in the seminary in Texas and being around you know, the churches over there were how many parents were told Your child will not survive more than a few hours. Do you know what that made them do? These are Christian parents. It made them treasure those few hours, they knew it was going to end in grief. But they so highly valued life, even if it was just for a few hours. If you have a voice in your head that's that common sense voice, it's not from God. The voice that says, yeah, but that was a waste of resources. It's not from God. God values life. The people of God value life. Cain, only cares about his own life. Well, it says, Then the Lord said to Cain, Where is Abel your brother? He said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? Total disrespect for God. And this is one of the things I tried to teach my kids when they were younger. I said, If you're going to lie, make it a smart lie. Okay? I said, Just... Be really good at it if you're going to do it. I prefer you not do it. But if you're going to do it, you know, don't tell me you didn't eat the cookies when the crumbs are all over your face. You know, at least, you know, don't insult me that way. At least wipe them off, you know. That's what I would do if I told my wife I didn't eat the cookies. So, but it's not even a smart lie. He's lying. I don't know. Yeah, you do. You killed him. You know exactly where he is. He's exactly where he fell when you killed him. He lies to God. It's a terrible lie. But God is doing what he did in Genesis 3. He's giving Cain an, an opportunity. It's another grace. It's another chance to say, Cain, look, yeah, you've messed up terribly, worse than anybody else in history. Now, okay. Where's your brother? They start taking those steps. And then he says, Am I my brother's keeper? What we see here is we see sin doesn't just reduce the value of human life, it destroys healthy relationships. Destroys healthy relationships. You can maybe maintain a relationship, but it won't be healthy. And he says, am I my brother's keeper? And, you know, God doesn't respond here, but I think if God did respond, um, you know, and we had it here, he would say, yes, yes, you are. Yes, that's how I set it up. I set it up where families, you guys care about one another. Families, you guys are going to be, you're going to be the foundation of this society, the foundation of the kingdom, of all that's good. You are your brother's keeper. That's the answer to the question. It's one of the things that that I, I hope I never have to deal with this situation. But it's something that I'm going to tell you up front, that this is what I intend to do. If something ever happened to, you know you know, somebody on, on our staff or, you know, involved in leadership in the church ever did something that was just wrong. And I mean seriously wrong. I'm not going to do what I think this happens t- so much at other churches where everybody's like, hey, wasn't me. That, that was, That's them. If we're a healthy church and we have healthy church leadership, then you know what? Everything is connected to who I am. Because I am my brother's keeper. I am my sister's keeper. It's not, oh, somebody got in trouble, let's run as far, as we, as far away as we can and let them kind of sort it out and maybe pray for them. You know? No. And I would just see that so many times where the pastor would be talking about you know, his staff or somebody like who got in trouble with something, he's like, I don't, know, I don't know what they did. By being our brother's keeper, our sister's keeper, it doesn't mean we're only there when people get in trouble, but it means we know each other, whether people are getting in trouble or not. We're connected. And then God says, what have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground, and now you are cursed from the ground which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you work the ground, it shall no longer yield to you its strength. You shall be a fugitive and a wonder on the earth. And what we find here is that Cain was already facing the consequences of his parents' sin, and now he compounds it with his own sin. His personal sin compounds those consequences. You see, we're, if, if we were to divide the world into two parts, the two parts are, you know, there's people who are under the curse, under, you know, still fallen, and then those who are under grace because of what Christ has done in our lives. And so the curse has still has to deal with the problems of, of, of original sin and then their sin adds on it. But just because the problems of original sin have been taken care of, if we as Christians continue in sin, we will still face consequences for that. We don't get a get-out-of-jail, you know, free card. Well, Cain says, My punishment is greater than I can bear. Behold, you have driven me today away from the ground, and from your face I shall be hidden. I shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth, and whoever finds me will kill me. Then the Lord said to him, Not so. If anyone kills Cain... Vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold. And the Lord put a mark on Cain, lest any man who found him should attack him. You see, if you could rewrite the Bible, if you, you know, I, I want to change one part. This would be the part. Right after Cain goes through his self-pity whining session, then it would be, Then the Lord said to him, Too bad. Good for you. You're lucky I'm even letting you walk. But that's not what it says. This is one of the times we're tempted to be like Adam and Eve, where we want to say, What are you doing, God? He murdered his brother, he hasn't repented, he's only thinking of himself. And you're, you're saying you're gonna protect him? What are we really saying? He doesn't deserve it. Well, who deserves grace? Isn't that what grace is? Undeserved merit? It gets worse though, those of you who are on team punish him harder. It says, Then Cain went away from the presence of the Lord and settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. Cain knew his wife, and she conceived and bore Enoch. When he built a city, he's not just getting to wander. He's being kind of successful. It says he called the name of the city after the name of his son Enoch. And then he talks about Lamech, and then he talks about Lamech's kids. You know, one of them is like the one who started all this, you know, getting flocks together and moving from place to place. And another one is the one who was really like the first of the musicians. And another one was these metalworkers. He has these successful grandkids. It's like, God, are you, what's wrong with you, God? Why would you bless somebody like Cable? I mean, like Cain. Well, it's because of this truth. God's grace is greater than our sin. What we see at the very beginning is the removal of the excuse anybody has. Nobody can say, God can't forgive me. Nobody can say, "I am too far gone. God cannot forgive me. God cannot extend grace to me." There's a little hint that Cain got it. And, and it's, in the, it's in the names of his grandsons where some people think like the, the name Abel is there. So in some ways there's some hint that he showed some remorse eventually. But if God can show grace to Cain, he can show grace to you. He can show grace to me. And we don't deserve it. And then it ends just with Adam knowing his wife again and they have a son, Seth. And God's grace continues to them You see, this is the road to the kingdom. And some people get this wrong. They think like the Bible is about human sin. It's not about human sin. It's about God's grace. The road to the kingdom is paved with God's grace. Grace upon grace upon grace. I hope you know that. I hope you have already experienced walking, knowing God's grace poured out on us who do not deserve it and received through faith in Jesus Christ.